at that time, and both of you mentioned this, there were very few uh, Indians and Indian families in, in not just the United States, but North America. Hardwired into Indian society that the lighter someone is, the more beautiful it is. Class and caste, they're both about hierarchy. Class so much more from an economic place, caste so much more in terms of just society. Human beings want to create hierarchies and color is a way to, to categorize people. Welcome to the Life of the Mind podcast, where our curiosity is explored through unique experiences and diverse perspectives. In this series, we will hear from three immigrants from India, their experiences moving to the U.S. as kids in the 1960s, and their observations on race in America. But first, a tiny bit of U.S. history to set the stage. The United States was created with empowering ideas of freedom, religious tolerance, voting, and economic advancement for all. But the country was also built on a history of oppression for many. Women, people of color, and even white non-landowners couldn't initially vote. Native Americans, indigenous, and first peoples were either tricked or forcibly taken from their lands, if not killed. And Africans were imported to be slaves in a system that made the Roman slaveholders look fair and just by comparison. Since founding of the country, Americans have been reckoning with how to uphold the good and fair in our system and fix the evils that have sprung from its past. Most now consider the Jim Crow era with abhorrence for its legalized segregation, harshly stifled voting, and a justice system that was often deadly to African Americans of slave ancestry. These state and local laws in the South began after Civil War Reconstruction ended, but their prevalence and enforcement increased during the first half of the 20th century until national attention was raised through protests and court decisions. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 gave the federal government power to change or overturn many of these local and state laws. The effects of these changes were not immediate, and some claim they weren't enough, but it was a start of real freedom for many Americans whose ancestors helped build this country through blood and sweat and were denied so much of its success. And here's some less talked about history that preludes today's conversation. The Immigration Acts, of 1917 and 1924 limited and effectively banned many immigrants from Asia, Mexico, and even those from the Mediterranean who had darker skin tone than their Northern European cousins. The law created a racial quota system prioritizing Northwestern Europeans to, and I quote, preserve the idea of American homogeneity, end quote. Racism in the early 20th century wasn't hidden, but in full view, quoted by politicians and enacted into law. Shortly following the Civil Rights Act came the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965, abolishing this race-based immigration quota system and replacing it with a system that prioritized refugees, people with special skills, and those of family members living in the United States. President Johnson, when signing it into law, sat beneath the Statue of Liberty and claimed the previous laws were un-American. 18 million immigrants, entered the U.S. in the three decades after the act was signed into law, more than tripling the total immigration from the three prior decades. 
It also impacted the racial makeup of the country. In the 1960s, 84% of Americans were non-Hispanic white. By 2015, only 62% were non-Hispanic white. And that leads to our conversation today. As a very direct result of the 1965 Immigration Act, these three gentlemen who were born in India moved to North America and made the U.S. and Canada their homes ever since. As a side note, the conversation was broad sweeping and fascinating, but also three hours long. Instead of cutting too much out and losing the richness of their stories, we split it over three episodes. This first episode focuses on immigrating to and growing up in the U.S. and Canada. They share personal experiences of being outsiders and a few observations on racial reconciliation and desegregation of the 1960s and 70s. And now to our very own Jake Chaco, who will introduce his guests and also participate in today's interview. Race in the United States is a very, very heavy topic, and we're going to take a unique perspective on it. I want to introduce our participants for, for today, and it is a conversation. All of the uh, participants are first-generation Indian immigrants. Let me introduce them, starting first with uh, my good friend, Raj Oza, who has been on an OGI podcast before. Uh, so, Raj, let me start with, uh, tell our listeners who you are, when and how you came to North America slash the United States, and what you do currently. Very good. Uh, thank you, Jake. Uh, good to be back with uh, you and, uh, uh, and uh, our friends at the Oak Guild Institute and our friends listening to the podcast as a whole. Uh, as Jake mentioned, I'm Raj, R-A-J, Raj Oza, and I'm a grandfather. Uh, I'm a father, I'm a husband, a son, a brother. Yeah, I'm also, uh, 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 how shall we put it, uh, a colleague. Uh, at one time, Jake and I were colleagues, uh, and, uh, and now we're friends. Um, and I'm a colleague to clients who really value uh, what I bring to the table, which is trusted advice given in a brotherly way. And certainly friends uh, to those who tolerate uh, my brotherly story. Sometimes they go on too long. <laughs> um, I also uh, do a little teaching at, uh, at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford. Um, and uh, those students who uh, appreciate, appreciate the value of getting to know each other in a deeper way. And I you know, certainly look forward to that with you, Jake, with you, Tom, uh, today around this important topic. Um, so I focus on interpersonal dynamics uh, over at the GSB. So my family and I, we're from Rajasthan originally. I was born in Bombay. Um, and uh, we moved to Canada in the mid-60s um, and then to the United States in 69. Um, hopefully that gives you a little bit of uh, the background uh, of, about myself uh, and those things that matter to me. Um, perhaps one last thing, and we may circle back to this one. I'm also a writer, a writer of nonfiction and fiction. And I do hope uh, that uh, somewhere between family, friends, colleagues, um, students, uh, that some folks will, you know, uh, read the words that I put the paper and uh, you know, always feel free to give me feedback of any sort. So with that, back to you, Jake. Uh, fantastic. Thank you for joining us today. Having read uh, uh, some of your writings, I can attest to the fact that you're a fabulous writer. Our other guest today is uh, 
is Tom Chaco. So Tom, same question. Yeah, I'm Tom Chaco. I, I self-identify as Jake's little brother. So that's, that's how I know, <laughs> know myself. Uh, so um, I was born in India, actually. I was born in Calcutta, which is uh, where our family was living um, in the 50s and uh, early 60s. And so we moved uh, to the U.S. Uh, in 1966 when I was seven years old. Uh, and then for, you know, uh, most of my growing up years, it was uh, in, in, in uh, the, the U.S. So I did all my schooling there. So all my secondary schooling and my post-secondary schooling in the U.S. And then in uh, 1990, I was offered a job, uh, an academic job at the University of Alberta, which is in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And so I moved up there in 1990 and uh, I've been there since then. So that's almost 32 years. So more than half my life has been uh, lived in Canada. But, but strangely enough, I, if, if I had to self-identify, I would still identify myself as an American. I'm legally an American. I'm an American passport holder, but also uh, on a more visceral level. Um, there's many, many great things about Canada, but uh, because my formative years were in the U.S., I still I regard myself as an American. Uh, thank you, Tom. I guess they say home is where your heart is. Um, so it, uh, it, it seems your heart is the United States, even though all of us started our journeys in, in, in India. And uh, very interesting. We have a juxtaposition. Raj started in Canada, but pretty quickly came to the United States, which is where he has lived for the rest of his time. You started in the United States and lived here for a long time, but have spent much, if not all of your uh, career in Canada, but you still identify as an American. And uh, the third member of this conversation, uh, while I'm your host for this podcast, uh, I'm more than an interviewer here. I'm part of the conversation because my name is Jake Chaco. And uh, I, too, am a first-generation immigrant. I identify, like Raj did, as a, a uh, husband, a father, now a grandfather, a friend, and big brother to Tom. We all have Calcutta in common, or Kolkata. Um, Tom was born there. Raj's wife, Mungla, is from there. And I spent the first 13 years of my life in Calcutta. Uh, we also have Chicago in common. I don't know if you know this, Raj. Uh, Tom did his postdoc in Chicago. And as you know, I lived for nine years in the Chicagoland area. Let's talk about the India where each of us grew up uh, and our impressions of that India. We'll spend some time there. Then we will uh, talk about the uh, United States where we completed our growing up and, and came of age, so to speak. So in terms of the setup and background for our listeners, the India that Raj, Tom, and I left um, was just coming out of 200 plus years of British influence, domination, and indeed British rules from about 1857 onward. Uh, and uh, that rule was both uh, good and bad. Uh, most people will say there was a lot of good that came out of the British rule, things like the civil service in India, the infrastructure that was built up, the British sense of order. Um, on the other hand, British, Britain was an occupying power, and it was colonialism and things like the white man's burden and all of that. Uh, I mean, Europeans were colonialists at that time, and India in particular was the crown jewel of, of the British Empire, given that they had lost the American colonies back in 1776. So they had a special affinity to 
to India, arguably it was for imperialism. So that was the India that uh, uh, India that was just coming out of that colonial and British Raj. And it was an India that uh, achieved its freedom through nonviolent means, through uh, Mahatma Gandhi's Satyagraha movement, the topic of a conversation Raj and I had in a previous podcast. But it was also in India that it was having conflicts with its neighbors, whether the neighbors were Pakistan or, or China. And it was in India that was trying to figure out its course and its development path. And uh, back then, the alternatives were the U.S. capitalistic system or the central economy of the Soviet Union. Uh, so the India that the three of us grew up in was against uh, uh, that milieu. And against that, I'm going to ask us uh, some questions. Let's have some conversations here. Let's start with uh, what are the memories of your, uh, of your Indian childhood? And Tom, let's, uh, let's start with you. And you were the youngest when you left, so it might be the earliest memories, but uh, let's start with you. Right. So b- because I, I, I was young when I left, I, I, I guess the way I would describe my memories are like a series of still photos rather than a continuous film. And, and so, you know, some of those photos are very still very vivid in my mind, but they're, they're somewhat disjointed. So, so what I remember is our flat in Calcutta. I remember the park, the big park, one of the big, I think one of the biggest ones in Calcutta, the Maidan that was uh, just close to our house. I remember the five minute walk to our to my nursery school and then to Don Bosco school, which is one of the well-known prep schools in, in Calcutta. So I, I you know, I, I have snapshots of, of that. Um, and I also uh, I have very fond memories of our, uh, our train journeys to visit our parents and uh, sorry, our grandparents and cousins in, in Madras and Bangalore. Uh, for for the holidays, so th- those are my most uh, vivid memories of my childhood and of India. Well, we all, you know, there's there's this whole theory of learning uh, from uh, Howard Gardner over at Harvard about multiple intelligences. And Tom, you're clearly a visual learner. You've got those snapshots. Um, I must be uh, someone who you know learns through his nose or something because the only true memory that I can honestly say that I still have is one based on the olfactory system. It's the smell of rain. Uh, when, it, when I have that anywhere in the world, something similar to rain falling on brick, something happens to me that takes me back, and it's a real memory. The rest of my memories are what I'd like to call earned or learned memories. Somebody's told me something, and they've repeated it often enough, more often than not, my parents. Uh, but, uh, you know, uncles, aunts, et cetera. And they repeated it often enough that I sometimes feel like, oh, yeah, that's my memory. Well, it is and it's not. Uh, and we'd love to hear your memories, Jake, uh, of, you know, Calcutta childhood uh, and you know, train journeys for, and all that. For, for sure. The, but right. So uh, so the, the sounds of rain. and Wow. How old were you when you came, by the way? Five years old. Uh, so you were very young. So in that sense, you were the youngest. Tom was next. And I'll. My memories, I was 13 when I left. So I have a lot of memories. And Calcutta, you know, is uh, still the place I grew up. I, I, I uh, had a fondness for the city, even though it's probably one of the dirtiest places on earth. But I have a fondness for Calcutta because uh, this is where I grew up. And I would say, like Tom said, our childhood was a, uh, it, it was a happy time, happy memories. And uh, both of you know India. 
touches all the senses and uh, uh, hearing, sight, smell, sounds. And growing up in the city of Calcutta, uh, all of that was part of my experience from, you know, flying kites on the on the terrace of our flat or apartment in the monsoon season with the rain falling down, uh, with the slums that used to be right outside our flat. And you see the contrast between the wealthy, which we were in India at the time, because our father was working for an American company, and the slums, just like in Slumdog Millionaire, that was the view outside our bedroom window. Uh, and then obviously in India, families, everything. And it was a happy childhood, I would, I, I would say. As you were leaving, and both of you were very young, what, what uh, was your uh, self-identity as you came out of India, right? And, and uh, you know, who did you think you were, if you thought anything like that at all, as, as you were coming out? So, Raj? Yeah, yeah. and, and you know, perhaps that story that I was sharing kind of gets a little bit at uh, the sense of identity. Um, I was clearly an Oza. And there's the six of us. There's something about that unit, even while we were in India, but definitely as we left, because we just moved as a unit from place to place. Um, so while India is surrounded by family, there's something about the six that was really important. And there's almost this sense of exceptionalism that my parents put into all of us, that there's something special about us. You know, my hope, of course, is that all parents do that, you know, for their children. And then what was happening in terms of, you know, this is one of those that as a child, you don't know, but these are told to you. You know, so we are of the Brahmin community, the priestly community. And there is something that, again, has this exceptional feeling. Oh, so you're priests, you're of that group. So there's something there that had to do with identity. And then there's this other two other pieces that is now outside. So the whole you know, sense of Hinduism, priest community, that goes back centuries. Then you go look forward, and my parents had me educated in an English medium school, which was not all that common. My brother wasn't educated in English medium, my sister wasn't, and my younger brother wasn't. Um, he was perhaps too young for that, uh, but already there was this outward looking, and not just that my father worked with uh, an organization that was linked to uh, the outer world, you know, to you know Dow Chemical in Midland, Michigan, uh, but there's this outward looking. And so that was part of our identity also. And with my father uh, deciding, hey, I'm going to go to Canada, and he was the scout. And there's a lot of resistance to this idea of leaving India. Um, it, it, there's this whole phrase called, Kalapani, uh, the black waters. Um, and when you leave, when you cross the ocean, in Hinduism, you lose caste. Um, you're no longer these exceptional folks. You're kind of with the barbarians, if you will. Um, but my father had this vision, my father and my mother, um, of this vision of what could be out there. So that must have been part of our identity that, yes, going back in time, but also. You know, the early, early days of globalization, the way we think of it today, I mean, it's always existed, uh, but modern globalization, you know, our families were very much a part of this, that movement out into the world. Um, so, you know, I'd love to hear more from 
both of you in terms of your identities, because you know, my sense is there's a lot we have in common, but there are also things that are different. You know, religion, you know, obviously being one of them, but uh, maybe others as well that I'd love to hear more about. Let me uh, just pick up on where you said and talk about my perspective, Raj, and I'll lead us into the next set of questions. So one of my self-identities, because I was obviously the oldest of the three of us when we left, and uh, 13 is when you're starting to form a sense of who you are you know, and entering puberty. And uh, the school that uh, we, we, my brothers and I used to go to, uh, I was becoming one of the big men on campus, the BMOC, if you will. So I was forming an identity as a BMOC. And as we get into coming to the United States, that's the equivalent of your Kalapani. All of that got shattered. There's no more BMOC. Uh, uh, also, uh, and you know, we'll talk more about this, and Tom will pick it up too, I guess. Yeah, you know, our heritage is Christian. Uh, actually, not from Western missionaries, but Christianity came to India uh, in the first century because there was a Jewish colony in India from uh, from centuries be- before the Common Era or before Christ. And our our heritage comes from uh, that Christianity, where supposedly one of the apostles came to convert the Jews, converted some of the Hindus as well, and Christianity sprung up and sprouted in India. But what was fascinating, and this goes to my identity, the Calcutta that I grew up in, uh, again, uh, back in the 50s and 60s, India has every hue of skin tone known to humans, A. B, Calcutta was a cosmopolitan city. So we had Europeans, you know, uh, English people left over, American expats, uh, some students from Africa, and Indians of all hues. And then, of course, back in the India of that time, it was a se- very secular country, very pluralistic. Um, so I remember high school lunchtime games. Uh, it was called Seven Tiles. I, you know, it was all on the dirt compound. But we would, uh, totally politically incorrect right now, but we would have the Christians against the Muslims and the Hindus would be watching and we'd call it the Crusades. Uh, so, uh, you know, so this uh, strange combination of a very pluralistic secular society, yet I was a Christian or a Christian heritage, uh, and I was getting to be the big man on campus, whether it's Kalapani or, uh, uh, you know, very young to leave. Were you looking forward to leaving? Uh, were you uh, uh, were you reluctant? Yeah. So as you mentioned, so it, it was our dad who was uh, it, he had um, done a co- a year, a year and a half of uh, of graduate work in the states in uh, immediately post World War II, um, and uh, he he I think he had really liked that experience, and then because he was working. Uh, he was the essentially the sales representative for a for an American engin- uh, engineering company in Calcutta. He would make relatively frequent business trips to the states, and in his eyes, uh, the U.S. was you know sort of this land flowing with milk and honey, and and, and in Calcutta he was being paid in U.S. dollars, uh, and so you can multiply that, and so we were very much upper upper middle class in. In, in India. So when they opened up the immigration regulations, uh, I think he, he made up various rationale to do this, but he jumped at the chance to, to you know, to, to move to the U.S. And so he was, 
I only have vague memories of this, but I think he tried to upsell the move to, to the kids. And I was probably the the one who, who who bit on that the most because I didn't have as many ties, as many friends as Jake did being only, you know, six, six and seven when, when, you know, he was doing this sell. But I vaguely remember, I don't know if he actually made this promise, but I vaguely remember him promising me a new bike when I got there. So it, it, looking forward to that, I was, I was looking forward to the move. I, I, I didn't have any reluctance about moving to, uh, to the States. Uh, fabulous. How about you, Raj? Now, I don't think I had any sense of what the United States was, Canada was, and I don't think I had any of this. For me, you know, in terms of, you know, was I glad? Was I looking forward to? Here's the thing. As a small child in Bombay, living in a flat, in an apartment on the second floor, with my father in Canada, there's a war going on between India and Pakistan. So, you know, there would be blackouts that would happen, this and that. It was a frightening time, quite frankly, as a child. And I, as a child, and this must have been just heartbreaking for my mom, would sleepwalk at night. I'd get up and walk around. And I have vague memories of that. But again, some of these are are told. Um, And it took me until well into adulthood to figure out, hmm, what was going on with that? And the story I stand by today is I was looking for my father. Mm. Uh, mm. You know, this must have been something processing in those dreams. It's like, okay, where's Papa? Where's Papa? Um, so for me, that's all that North America represented. That's all that that flight through Germany, you know, to Canada represented to me was I was going to see my father. Um, and promptly the sleepwalking stopped, <laughs> you know, um, we got to Canada, this, that it's like, Oh, this is easy. Yeah. No need for a therapist. No need for anything. <laughs> you know, you see your father, you're in good shape. So, um, so yeah, I, that's really is much more is very familial in terms of what I was looking forward to rather than societal or, you know, big, you know, macroeconomic or anything, you know, that we wouldn't even have language like that until we showed up in college, of course. But I don't think I even really had a sense of another, you know, of borders. You mentioned, you know, porous borders. You know, it's probably like, oh, yeah, there's Bombay, there's Rajasthan, but there's, you know, and of course, you know, Rajasthan villages in Bombay, like, like, like uh, Calcutta, very cosmopolitan, where you see everyone and everything. Um, but uh, beyond that, it's just like, was that like another village where my father is or like, where is he? You know, you know, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll come back to that as we say a segue into the next one, the transition from India into uh, into North America is a lot more than Rajasthan to Bombay or, or traveling within India. One more uh, topic uh, in, in this section. What what was your impression of race, if any, while you were growing up? This podcast is sponsored by the Oak Guild Institute. Our society is heavy on opinions, but light on wisdom and scarce on time. At OGI, we seek to learn from unique experiences and diverse perspectives across many topics. We believe dialogue, even if contested, can open our minds and build compassion towards those with opposing viewpoints. Currently, we are a fledgling organization with a podcast 
and salon-style conversations bringing people together in person and online. Please visit oakguild.org, O-A-K-G-U-I-L-D dot O-R-G to learn more and get involved. What was your impression of race, if any, while you were growing up? And uh, you might be, both of you might have been too young, uh, but did you have any impression about race in, in, in America? Um, let's, let's go with Raj here. Yeah, I definitely did not have any sense of race in America until we showed up to Canada. And, and if you'd like, you know, happy to share that. But I think I was, I think children learn pretty early of, you know, there's a, there's a, a French anthropologist, uh, Louis Dumont, uh, long past now, but uh, one of his classic works on India uh, and the caste system is Homo hierarchicus. Man is hierarchical. And I think children, and again, this is me now at this age, you know, 61 years old, I think children understand that there's difference, whether it's, you know, real or, you know, socially constructed, doesn't matter to the child. They're thinking, yeah, there's difference. So I'm pretty sure that I understood or was made to understand that there were differences. Um, and and you know that these were striking differences that certain people did certain work and other people did other work you know you married certain people you didn't marry others uh, you know all these things i am sure that was a part of me you know as for north america you know zero idea of what existed in canada until we showed up there and then it was pretty clear <laughs> what was going on and likewise canada uh, chicago we can get into that when we yeah. When, we're ready when we get to the great, thank you, thank you, Raj. How about you, Tom? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, just picking up on what Raj said, it, I, I think um, what was pretty hardwired into me because of our sort of upper upper middle class upbringing in Calcutta was that. So in this, you know, one floor flat in in Calcutta, um, we had uh, I might have the exact number wrong, but I think we had six servants. So, you know, there were a couple of, at least one lady who helped my mother in the kitchen. We had two drivers. There was a head servant. And then because I was the youngest, I was, you know, five and six years younger than my two older brothers. There was one sort of teenage guy who was sole responsibility, was running around making sure I didn't kill myself. And, and so, you know, so there was this, you know, we had servants and the, the, the class system, whether it's caste or class, it's hardwired into Indians because that's, that's the way society is. And I, I, I'm sure I wouldn't have been able to articulate this as a, you know, as a child in, in India, but, but I had a, you know, general sense, I think, you know, that in, in the States, people were white. I didn't see uh, the U.S. as a you know multicultural place, I saw it as a place where you know where white people were. Now, that's the way I would have perceived it. Yeah, I want to just jump into that 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 sense of whiteness. When we showed up to Canada, it was just white. It was snowing, yes, but it was just white. Uh, you know, when I was doing some diversity training as a manager at Hewlett Packard, uh, and then eventually teaching this to others. I showed them pictures of myself in Canada in my elementary school. And then my daughter, I think, yes, it was my daughter here in Morgan Hill and her elementary school. And I said, you see any difference here? And everyone would laugh, of course, because 
you know, here in Morgan Hills, like, oh, yeah, there's Indians and you know, Indian Americans, European Americans, African Americans, you know, Latinx, you know, all that stuff is there. Um, so, yeah, it was very much that way. And, you know, interestingly, when we moved to Chatham, uh, there was, you know, in terms of people of color that I was aware of, uh, there was one other family from the South Asian continent in this uh, city, uh, uh, Muslim and closest friend. So this whole thing about Pakistan and India meant nothing for us in Canada. It's like, oh, it, it's us. And then one other uh, gentleman by the name of Fergie Jenkins that everyone's kind of like, oh, OK, there's Mr. Jenkins. And, you know, those of you who are of a certain age and who you know love baseball. Uh, we'll know that Fergie pitched. It was a Hall of Fame pitcher for the for the Chicago Cubs. Um, but for all, everyone else, he's like this black man who was living over there. And you just didn't mess with Mr. Jenkins, you know, um, not that he wasn't kind or any of that. It's just that sense of in a white space, people of color are in this way, whether exceptional or not, othered and kind of just put to the side. So but none of this was available to me in India. It wasn't until very quickly upon landing in Canada that. It's like, oh, now you see something different. Uh, no, th thank you both. And again, having been, uh, um, having had the most experience in India in, in terms of growing up there, uh, I'd had more time there. And but what both of you talk about class and hierarchy, that's just wired in. And uh, I'd had maybe more runtime experience uh, studying history, both Indian history, uh, English history, which is what we studied. Uh, maybe even more than Indian history, and then read books which were mostly from the West. And my sense of uh, my sense of race, if you will, uh, had to do with the came from the British colonial heritage, if you will. Uh, and if anything, uh, I knew we were different, but uh, in in some sense, I'm almost embarrassed to say it. But you know, there was this book that uh, I'll hold up when I was a child. It's called Little Black Sambo. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, it, it starts off talking about Little Black Sambo and his mother Mambo and his father Jumbo. And I remember as a kid thinking, oh, this is about kids in Africa. Son of a gun. This it talks about Sambo and tigers. This book is a, the Sambo character is actually in South India, where Tom and I hail from. I, that was just not me. That was, that was somebody else. I wasn't white, but I wasn't little black Sambo. So in a sense of hierarchy and class aside, uh, race uh, was there, but Africa was someplace else. And I had no concept really other than very romanticized, even though I was 13 about race in America. I'd seen the movie Shenandoah and had heard about Harriet Beecher Stove and Uncle Tom's Cabin was very romanticized. Uh, and I, I had no appreciation, uh, sad to say, about, uh, about race in America, nor, nor could you expect anyone to. So that was the, uh, uh, the, the, the India we left, uh, from a colonial heritage, if you will, to, the, uh, to North America and the United States. I think it, it's hardwired into, if not every Indian, many Indians. But I think long before the British were there, the Indians have an incredible uh, sense of being able to distinguish colors. They can distinguish shades of brown better than anyone. And, and somehow it's hardwired into Indian society that the lighter someone is, 
the more beautiful it is. It, it, it is it is very deep seated in this, and and so you know when when the Brits came, um, I, intentionally or unintentionally, they they were able to set themselves up being the whitest as as you know being somehow of the highest status. I I think that that's still in me even after being in North America for a long time. You know, we, we see that. So I, I would have never articulated this, you know, directly, but I, I, I probably perceived white as somehow being superior uh, because it, it is so hardwired in Indian, in, 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 in Indian sociology and culture. Tom, you're getting right to the heart of the matter, you know, of our discussion here. I mean, I, I know a lot of this background is, is fascinating for me and hopefully for our listeners, but. Uh, Colorism wasn't a phrase back then. Um, it's you know it's in vogue now, but colorism existed, and you know whitening ointments you know for primarily women you know to be fair and lovely. That's the actual name of a product, fair and lovely. Um, and you know there is this economic element. You know, as as someone who studied a lot of anthropology, where well, obviously those whose jobs are to be inside, whether an air-conditioned place or not isn't relevant, you know, are going to be likely to be of a fairer skin. The skin, the sun just hasn't burned them than those who are outside. And those who are outside are more likely to be doing labor work. Um, so is the life of the mind more important than the life of the hands? You know, at this stage in life, you say, of course not, head, heart, and hands. But an entire society is structured around that. Um, so that is absolutely so important that you call out that. And then that stays with us. I mean, it gets passed down through the generations. Um, you know, just one other comment. It's kind of uh, apropos of this discussion around class and caste. They're both about hierarchy. Class, so much more from an economic place. Caste, so much more in terms of just society you know, socioeconomics. And, and a woman by the name of Isabel Wilkerson, I believe, has written a, a fascinating work that compares and contrasts caste in America with caste in India. And she calls it caste. And, and thinking about what is the African-American experience here? And what does that mean in terms of caste? And what about those in India that, you know, rather, you know, unfortunate word the untouchables that those of a higher caste, you know, could not even touch or that their shadows couldn't fall on those who are you know, twice born, who are of higher caste. Um, so this is all part of this discussion. Um, and so much of it was in the subconscious and stays with us. And it's so important that we're unpacking it in this way in this context of America. Uh, thank you both for raising that. And uh, just a thread for our listeners to pull on. Uh, we won't uh, dive into that. But Raj, you mentioned the word colorism. If you just Google or go to YouTube and, and look at all of the uh, South Asians, uh, particularly Indian Americans now in the United States, there are millions of us. And you look at one of the issues uh, besetting the, the younger generation, it's this whole emphasis on color and colorism and, and the damage it, it, it causes. So uh, you can go uh, research that. But in, in human beings want to create, uh, 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 create hierarchies and color is a way to, 
to categorize people. And maybe, you know, that's why it happened. Who knows? I'm, 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 I'm not a sociologist or an anthropologist, but uh, it's such an easy way to set distinctions. And we'll get to that when we come to the United States, where it was so clear that they were, at that time, Northern European whites and African slaves. So you had the two extremes and not the blending that you had in India, which, you know, uh, which created the, which had the caste system. And arguably there's some correlation, some correlation between caste and color, but, but much less so than the United States where the contrast was so, so severe. Let's uh, move to our uh, coming to North America, coming to the United States. This is our growing up in America, if you will, or, or North America. And, uh, the United States, we came in again, it was the 60s. Uh, we talked about the civil rights legislation, the Immigration Act. At that time, and both of you mentioned this, there were very few uh, Indians and Indian families in, in not just the United States, but North America, Chatham, Ontario, for example, in your, your class picture. So there were very few of us. And it was a time when, at least in the United States, it was roiled by the Martin Luther King and the RFK assassinations. It was the time of Vietnam. It was the time of Watergate. It was the time of the hippie movement and, and drugs. Uh, and so it was a very tumultuous time. And it was the time in which each of us came as, uh, uh, as children or early teens uh, and ha had to find our way and kind of grow up. So let's just, let's just talk about that. Uh, what's your, uh, memories of li life in the United States or North American, how did you adapt? Uh, what mechanisms did you uh, create to, to cope and adapt? Uh, Raj? Well, you know, first, maybe a, a light story. It's, it's a heavy topic, but just a light one. Um, so the Canada I was in was relatively conservative. I didn't have any of that language back then, but relatively conservative, very yeah, homogeneous. You show up to this Evanston, Illinois, right, a suburb right north of uh, Chicago, and it's as mixed as it can be in some ways compared to Canada. We showed up in 69. So, you know, that horrible year of 68, you know, with Martin and Bobby and you know, all that stuff was not part of my present. What was part of my present was the moonshot. It's like, wow, you know, we're having our own moonshot as a family, you know, from India to Canada and now Chicago. Um, and then the world's doing it. It's not just about America there. I mean, that was really the world, you know, one of our guys is up there. So that was pretty amazing. And then the little school that, you know, I went to the elementary school, my younger brother, Kamlesh, and I went to, my father takes both of us to introduce us to the principal, make sure we get registered and all that. He was an African-American man. And one of the first things that he takes us is to these two drinking fountains. And he said, in the old days, this fountain was for the white kids. And this one, the low one lower, was for the black kids. I'm trying to wrap my head around this. The principal said this? The African-American principal said this to you? Yes. He said, wow. and, and it was from a place of pride of to say, we don't have that. You know, and he didn't say it, but, you know, look at it's kind of like Obama being president for that man to be the principal of central school was an accomplishment in the 60s. Um, so it's like that was the first thing. Now, this is a principal telling me. So that's a told story. And not just me telling my father, my younger brother, myself. Then all of a sudden you're in the classroom. 
And there's this kind of separation that's happening. And Mrs. Davis was our, our teacher, wonderful, warm woman. But there's a separation. And I'm over here with the white kids, except for one other black kid. And then there's a bunch of black kids over here. And Evanston was probably about, I don't know, maybe 40% black, you know, 59% white. And then those of us left over for the demographers to figure out. And so in the classroom, there's this division that happened. And that's based somehow on what someone perceives to be as intellectual capability. Um, because they had this way of, you know, kind of tracking people. So Evanston, Illinois had its own version of that. Now, they weren't Christians and Muslims, but they were blacks and whites. They're all boys. There are no girls that played dodgeball. You know, dodgeball is a war game that kids play. And there's the black team and there is the white team. And before I showed up, there was Francisco. um, I believe Mexican-American, but I don't know. And he always played with the black kids. And I showed up. And the first few times, like, oh, okay, you know, I was kind of playing with the white kids because uh, that's where I was in the classroom. But there's like, I went over to Francisco and I said, hey, Francisco, how about we switch? Sometimes you're black and I'm white. Sometimes I'm, I'm black and you're white. He looks at me like, are you crazy? What's this? And, and we're both fairly athletic. You know, I had some capabilities as a, as a little athlete. Don't have any of them left over now. Um, and the black kids wanted me to play with them and the white kids wanted Francisco to play with them. And they were happy to have it switched because we were good. We, we had good hands. We could catch that ball, um, and never get thrown out. I was good at catching. I wasn't that great at throwing, but I was really good at catching the ball. So I wouldn't get thrown out. Um, so it's like, wow, these kids on their own, there, there are no adults on the playground. Uh, and then it just continues from there. So it's kind of a long way of saying, you know, what was the America that I came into? How did I adapt? Um, and it started right from the get-go. It didn't take years to figure this stuff out. Um, it was right there at entry. Well, uh, wow, right. Thank you. And, uh, you know, uh, obviously Evanston, just in terms of the African-American to white ratio, was very different from the Westfield, New Jersey that Tom and I came into. So why don't you pick up and give us your experiences, Tom? Earlier part of the conversation, Raj mentioned, you know, feeling like the other. Uh, and, and so definitely, it, I, I do not remember any person of color in Jefferson Elementary School of any, any color other, other than other, white. Other than yourself, of course. Yeah, other than myself. <laughs> and, and, and so, so it, I, I, was the, I was the only one. So I was an other. So it's not like anyone, you know, tried to make me feel like the other. I was the other, you know. So, you know, I, you know fly in the soup kind of thing or, or, or in the milk. You know, I, I think people, I, I remember when I came in third grade, Mrs. Krieger's third grade class, they had assigned me a buddy to sort of look look after me to try to make the adjustment. So I think, you know, people tried to make me um, feel apart. And, and as a kid, I did not want to stand out. But as a kid, I was fairly sociable and I had some athletic ability. So, you know, that, that has some currency. So I think I was able to adapt fairly quickly. But as soon as I could, I wanted to, um, you know, obviously could not look like the others, but I wanted to speak like the others. I'm sure when, I, when we moved, I spoke with an Indian accent. But within a year, 
um, certainly two years, I, I, any trace of the Indian accent uh, was gone. So I, you know, I, I think I, I wanted to assimilate in, in, into that that sort of milieu of, of, of Jefferson Elementary School. And what happened was, it, it, so what must have been around 69, 70, so when I was in sixth grade, which was still in the elementary school, it, it was the first, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of the harbinger of, of the school busing. So it, it wasn't from another town, but from another part of town that they started bringing in some black kids. So that was the, the first, the, the only other person of color, there were some black kids and they were often from the poorer sections of town. And by that time, you know, all my friends were, were white kids. And so I, I think I viewed the black kids as, you know, as something to fear. They were often bigger. Uh, and, you know, it was like, and, and they were from a different socioeconomic group. And so, you know, okay, they're coming in in sixth grade. And, you know, how do we adjust to this? Um, and, and it was in the, in the midst of the civil rights movement. But, you know, that, that, that was my first sort of exposure to African-Americans uh, was in sixth grade. Uh, thank you. And again, Raj, this is just a fascinating conversation because the Westfield we moved into was maybe 5% or between 5 and 10% uh, Black or African-American. And they were all in this one section of town uh, call, and on the road was, I still remember it, called Kakiela Place, right? Uh, and, and, and like Tom, even though I was 13, I had just entered what was then junior high, but ninth grade or the start of high school. Uh, I, I, I too wanted to Ah, look, I was the big man on campus in Calcutta and I was a nobody and I didn't have both of you guys' athletic prowess. Uh, I was maybe a nerd, but uh, I, I didn't want to stick out as the other and I couldn't change my skin color. So, Tom, what you talk about the accent and, uh, uh, and, 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 and in fact, I remember after the uh, first marking period, and I didn't even know what marking period was, uh, I got my report card and somebody I was walking uh, home with that what did you get uh, i said yeah i did well uh well how well i, I got all a's and I said what are you some kind of scholar you know so i i i i felt i had to i i wasn't trying that hard but 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 this would make me uh not stand out or if if i stand out it would stand out in a good way and what is fascinating and we'll dive more into this even as we go along but yeah i, I want to dwell on this a little bit what is fascinating raj is the african-american experience just because of the town that Tom and I moved into, uh, we either chose not to or we didn't have to get into the African-American experience uh, as, as, as deeply as you did. The, the schoolyard games didn't break up between the, uh, you know, the, the, the blacks versus the white and trying to figure out which side based on athleticism or, 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 or whatever. We, that, that choice was not there. We didn't have to make the choice. So uh, most of all, uh, I just didn't want to stand out. So, uh, so I was like my, uh, my brother in that sense. And I think that we're really on to something here. And Tom, you know, thank you for bringing up that sense of, of your experience. But if we universalize it, and Jake, you just did, and I, and I certainly share that sense of you know, wanting to belong. I think this is true for all children. Uh, you know, you don't want to be too tall. You don't want to be too short. You don't want to be too fat. You don't want to be too skinny. You know, it's like there's, there's this mainstream that you want to, so you belong, so you're not an other. 
And I think in many ways that that must be a challenge in some ways in terms of as a black kid, what is the mainstream, even in a place like Evanston, Illinois? Well, the mainstream in terms of everything that the media teaches you, everything that the world teaches you, even though Evanston might be 40% black, that mainstream is white. Um, so there's like this other thing that must be going on. You know, for us, we're one individual in a school. It's like easy, as you said, Tom, it's like, well, I was other, you know, like, okay. And it's almost a it's almost a basis of survival, you know. I mean, my parents told us, "You will not speak Hindi or our village dialect, Marwari at home. You will speak English. You will not sound like us. You will sound like them, so that you know when you pick up the phone, they don't know that they're speaking to Raj. They think they're speaking to Roger. Yeah, hey, it's Raj, you know. Um, and so that's like a survival thing. And immigrants know how to do this assimilating. But when you go back generations and you're brought here on a boat, you didn't fly here of your own volition on a plane, you know, in the hull of a boat, you show up and that your, your ancestors do. And then you're still trying to fit into this. You're still an other in some ways. That's just got to be so, so difficult, you know, and this takes no empathy that I have, you know, for, for, you know, that white kid who's not athletic on the playground. Because he's also, she's also really struggling. I mean, I, I tell you a small story. Now I'm in middle school, still in Evanston before we moved to Wheaton, which actually looked a little bit like your your hometown. Was it Westfield? Is that what you, is that the Westfield, name? Westfield, yes. Yeah, but before we go to Wheaton, so I'm in middle school, and we're you know end of the day, three o'clock bell rings. We're coming down the stairs of Nichols uh, uh, Junior High School or Nichols Middle School. I can't remember what we called it. Um, and we're coming down the stairs and some kid leans over me and then leans in front of me and flips the cap of a kid in front of me. That kid's name's Chuck Connors. Uh, not, not the, uh, not the rifleman. If you guys know that, uh, that TV actor who was actually a ball player at one time too, but yeah, he's a white kid and you know, he's kind of dorky and this and that. Uh, and he flips the cap. Chuck looks back and he sees me. He goes, you flip my cap. There's a Cubs cap. Yeah, it's my, my Cubs cap. Yeah, it's all dirty. I'm going to beat you up. So we get down the stairs. We're outside. And he wants to fight me. And my parents, partly because they worked, you know, three jobs each. It was hard, this, that. They dressed us in these black pants and white shirts every day. That's how we showed up in school. And I was just so scared of my parents thinking I was in a fight. Because if I got into a fight, I'd get dirty. So it wasn't that I was necessarily scared of Chuck or I wasn't, but I didn't want my clothes to get dirty. So I was like, no, I don't want to fight. First of all, I didn't flip the cap. He goes, yeah, you flipped the cap. Well, and here's where the empathy comes in. Now, at this age, I don't think I had it back then. This whole group of kids make a semicircle all behind me, white kids and black kids, athletic kids and academically capable kids. They all stand behind me and want me to beat the living daylights out of Chuck, and they've got my back. There's not a kid behind Chuck. He's by himself there. But he's got pride. He doesn't want his cap in the dust somewhere. Um, so he still wants to get into the fight. So I've got all the power in the world. It's like, oh, I'm not going to get that fight. Othering is just there in the world. But how much harder it is when you come from a place of of being power down, as we say at Stanford, you know, not being power up, power up white, power up 
academically capable, athletically capable, you know, power down all the other stuff, you know, socially capable. I mean, he was a little, like I say, dorky. If you're not socially capable, my God, you really are an outcast in middle school, you know? Uh, so a lot going on with that, but uh, a lot more to cover. Thank you to Jake Chaco, Raj Oza, and Tom Chaco for sharing your experiences of immigration and observations of race relations while growing up. In the next episodes, we'll hear more from these gentlemen about how they build their careers and families in a country rapidly changing in so many ways. What were the uh, subtle and the blatant examples of racism toward you. This was the Oak Guild Institute's Life of the Mind podcast, where our curiosity is explored through unique experiences and diverse perspectives. We encourage you, the listener, to share this episode with another and start a dialogue. Remember, it's always okay to respectfully and lovingly disagree with ideas and interpretations of events you listen to here or you get from other sources. Through reflection and dialogue, we seek truth and also to live compassionate and flourishing lives. To find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And visit oakguild.org to learn more about our other efforts to deepen and broaden the conversation.